lots and lots of spoilers. Yeah! Metal! We are Max Mike Movies! Are you ready to rock out to some film criticism? I said, are you ready to rock out to some film criticism? Yeah, yeah, okay, sure, fine. I, I can't hear you! Oh, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll lean a little closer to the mic. Is, is that better? <laughs> never mind, never mind! Yeah! Devil Horns! A total guitar riff! Woo! As everyone knows, I'm totally into the metal. I love me some Black Sandwich. Judith Priest, <laughs> Motorface, and my favorite Hebraic metal band, Motley Jew! Yeah! Yeah! Ooh. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really much into that uh, heavily metallic music, which is why I chose this movie for That Sure Was 1981, because I thought this was a documentary about the rise of heavy metal music. Um, spoiler alert, it is not. No, this is a movie based on an adult comic magazine, illustrated magazine. I'm not sure really what you would, how you would define it uh, of the same name. I'm not sure what you could call it, but it's been around for more than 50 years. It's still going. Starting off uh, from an American company in, Par in France with much more um, adult content than had ever been seen in American comics. Like the magazine, the movie is really an anthology of stories that the filmmakers tried to string together into a single overarching narrative. Did they succeed? Well, let's rock on and find out! I'm your host, Max Thunder Pain Demon Blood Levine, and over there, opening beer bottles with his eyelids, is Mike, too damn violent for a nickname, Loose. Yeah. Um. Uh, riffs. Um. Sure. Why not? Gur. <laughs> New Christy Minstrel. <laughs> I bring a good book. Uh, uh, but before we start, or before we get into the movie, we have our poll question. Oh, question. Question from last week was: If a movie is an adaptation of something you and you haven't read the source material, will you seek it out before, after, or at all? I should have said during. <laughs> during. Yeah, that'd be a bad sign for the movie. Uh, maybe the book's better. Flip, flip, flip. You're uh, wrong on page thirty-six. <laughs> yeah. uh, from our from our Ned, our cheese boy. Who actually posted on the website. Well done, Ned. <clears throat> I don't tend to seek out the source material, but I'll definitely go see a movie if I like the story it's based on. Somehow the film industry has tricked us into thinking one is okay but not the other. Part of it is probably that I find bad movies more enjoyable than bad books, songs, toothpastes, etc. I don't know, I like a bad toothpaste. But that Ooh. just begs the question of why bad movies are something special. Goodness knows, we've tackled that question over and over at this on this show. And we'll nice keep one, doing Ned. it. <laughs> From Dave. Dave. The book is always better than the film. Well, okay. That's been solved. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, Dave. And remember, he is a lawyer. <laughs> Novels and just kung fu. Yes, and a karate. <laughs> Novels just have more intellectual substance than movies can possibly have, which is a plus and a minus. Okay, that's kind of hard to argue with. I will, only, I will only rarely seek out a book before seeing a movie, and if a movie is made of a book I liked, I will dread going to the movie, and I'm less likely to think highly of it. 
That said, I am looking forward to a movie adaption of The Lincoln Highway. Mm. Uh, sometimes a movie or TV series makes me want to read the book. It, the Expanse, for example. The Cloud Atlas, oddly, was so bad it made me completely unable to consider reading the book, even though it is on many lists of great novels. Hmm. Interesting. Max meant adaptation. What did I say? The, the horrid, terrible adaption. Ah, excuse me. <laughs> Jamie <laughs> Kleinert. All of the above? <laughs> wow. <laughs> if I have time before the movie is released, I'll try to read the source material first, assuming it's something that is interesting enough. For example, I read Killers of the Flower Moon recently because I know that movies are coming out. Movies, plural. Hmm. And I'm interested in it because of the cast and because of the connections to where we live in Kansas. Oh, interesting. Neat. Uh, there are other movies I've been aware of source material before watching, but wait until after to read. Contact is probably the best example of this. Oh, dear. I saw the movie shortly after it was released on video, but didn't read the book until my second trip through college. I love Carl Sagan. I love Jodie Foster. I knew it was based on a book, but I couldn't find the book when I watched the movie. I think I was working at Blockbuster at the time, so it was an impulse watch as well. Same thing happened with Enola Holmes. Eh. The source material was checked out at the library for weeks on end, and I decided to just watch it before sharing it with Cece. Okay. I just would like to say that that was not uh, Carl Sagan's second trip through college, if you uh, <clears throat> know what I mean. <laughs> yes, I think he did it billions and billions of times. Steve Kellner writes, Depends. In general, I prefer to have read the source material first, especially if it's a book length, because no movie can capture an entire book. That's certainly true. The content is really no more than a short story, which may be why some of the most successful adaptations of Stephen King are based on short stories, not novels, e.g. Stand By Me. Mm -hmm. having, having said that, there was one time I was very badly burned by reading the book first because it was so bad that it tainted the movie for me. <laughs> tainted. <laughs> tainted. Star Wars. <laughs> Okay. Well, now, to be fair, that was itself an adaptation of a script that hadn't been finished, so I don't remember who wrote that, but okay. I think I remember reading the, the novelization of Star Wars or whatever, and it was the first one. Anyway, it was really bad. Mm. Nick Hoffman says, I always watch the movie first. If I read the book first, the movie is always a letdown, but if I see the movie first, I can judge it on its own merits. Mm, fair. Valerie, stop telling people I'm related to Mike Coons, writes... She didn't say that. She totally did. I've got it right here in my notes. Most of the time, I won't it. read the book. Every, every once in a while, a movie might compel me to read its source, but like Dave Mackman said, almost always the book is better than the movie. Hmm. Ooh, uh, she even references Dave Mackman. She does. Dave. Nice, nice sub-reference there, Val. Take another five bumpy bucks. And yeah. Angelo, Angelo Patsalis says, I would read the book but not see the movie. However, two books come to mind, The Notebook and Eat, Pray, Love. I was disappointed in the movies a little bit. Mm. Matt Reisman says, I've seen movie trailers that make me interested in the book, and it was long enough a long enough wait until the movie came out that I just read it. Usually I'll see the movie, try to see the movie first. Then, if I enjoy it, read the book. I used to do the opposite, but would have people spoil the book that I was literally reading right in front of them because they started talking about the movie. Yeah, that is a real risk. Yeah, if you work with a bunch of, like, geeks and nerds, yeah. Uh, Charles Forsyth says, I, I want to see the movie on its own terms. If I'm engaged by the subject matter, I may then want to read the book. 
I ended up seeing Dune in theaters twice, mainly because I didn't really see it the first time I watched it. I didn't quite understand that sentence. Uh, what I saw were all the comparisons to the Lynch film and the book. Oh, okay, I get it. Oh, he means the new one. Yeah. Okay. The recent Dune covers part of the part of the story Lynch's film actually did okay on. Okay, that's sorry, being very ge- that's being very generous to the Lynch movie, but uh, overly generous, I from would say. Vince the Snowman up north. Snowman. Yeah, I us- I will usually read the source material to any movie I like, and if the ideas are good and the movie isn't, I might as well to see if the problem is in the book. Eh, okay, that's reasonable. Yeah. And a uh, special shout out to Dr. Lauren who actually emailed this comment to us <gasps> at our email address using email. What? Hey, yep. You should do this because remember, she is a doctor. Oh. If a movie She'll get is 20 times 20 bumpy 20 times bucky buck. Bucky bucky bucks. Bucky bumps. Bucky bumps. I think we've got a new tongue twister here. <laughs> we have a new cure for bucky bumps. <laughs> Would you help? Are you suffering from the heartbreak of Bucky Bumps? Anyway, (laughs) back to Dr. Lauren. If a movie is based on a book I've read, I go out of my way not to see it. If I like the book, my mind pictures are better than any I'll see on the screen. Okay, that's fair. If I didn't like the book, why would I want to watch the movie? Well, that covers it pretty well, actually. (laughs) I think it's very logical. I I can see absolutely no holes in that theory. Uh, Generally, if I haven't read the book, it's because I'm not interested in the plot, so why would I go to a movie? In general, if I go to see a movie, it's because someone I like wants to see it and drags me to the theater. I'm getting the feeling Lauren doesn't like (laughs) movies very much. Uh, There have been a couple of times I saw saw a movie, and it inspired me to read the book. First was Escape to Witch Mountain. That's an interesting choice. I didn't even know that was a book. Me neither. <laughs> yeah, the second was Jaws. That is interesting because the book is really different from the movie. Mm. And the third was Fried Green Tomatoes. Huh. All right. Well, thank you very much, Lauren. Bumpy bucks of yeah. plenty for you. Lots and lots. So, Mike, what about you? Do you, if you? How do you deal with adaptations? I made the mistake once. There was a very large movie, a big ponderous movie <laughs> coming out. <laughs> And I was like, you know, and it was based on a classic book. And I was like, you know, I've never read this book. It's one of those stories I think I know, and a lot of people think they know, but probably also haven't read. Yeah. It was Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> and I oh, made the mistake dear. of reading the book. Oh! Although, to be fair, I don't know if it actually ruined things for me <laughs> by reading the book. I, um, I kind of doubt it. Uh, I they kind of lost me at uh, Keanu Reeves' accent. Oops. Um, yeah. So whoa, I will say whoa, this, gentlemen, yeah. dudes. No, you're not. Um, I will say this. I had never seen the ending of the actual story done correctly before, yeah. which I, when I was told what it was, didn't believe it till I read it. But yes, it is true. In the original book, Dracula is taken down by. A cowboy with a Bowie knife. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish I was making that. You always up, but think it's that's true. a joke, but it isn't. Nope. It's nope. exactly what happens. And also, I wasn't expecting it's an epistolary novel, meaning that it's entirely mm. told through letters, which yeah. is a form that we don't use anymore. But I actually thought it was pretty interesting. Um, and in general, most people say the book is always better than the film, and and I ninety nine percent of the time agree, except for Blade Runner. Uh. I think that what. Ridley Scott did was he, and to be fair, the screenwriters, because he didn't write it, what they did was they took the best essence out of the story and made something that was kind of wholly their own and still an adaptation. So I read that after the fact and was like, oh, it's a Philip K. Dick book where 
there's an interesting idea and very, very thin characters. Uh, but, you know, how about you? Um, I usually, if I know a movie is coming out, it, I don't want to go and read the book first. Because mm-hmm. as every, I agree, you almost, in most cases, 99.9%, the, the book is better than the movie. Um, I will see a movie sometimes, and if I like the movie, I'll be in, that will often inspire me to go read the book. How did you deal with Lord of the Rings? Because that's sort of like the exception to the yeah. rule for a lot of people. Because I know there's tons of people who loved those books. You, I know, loved those I books. Do. Loved I those do. books. And these movies were coming out, and the previews, which were the first preview you could actually download, took two hours, yeah. and watch on your computer. Yeah. But everyone was really excited about those. How did you approach Lord of the Rings? I went in expecting to be completely disappointed. I went in assuming this was not going to work. I, I was like, "There's no way. You, this is this is a book." I was convinced. This is again. I shows how I can be completely wrong. I thought this book was unfilmable, and I mm. walked out of the first one going, all, "Like I, all I could think of was Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park." You know, you did it, you crazy son of a bitch. You did it, <laughs> and he did. They they he made a, a brilliant movie. I, I it was one of the one of my favorite adaptations. I think it's terrific. And that I was, was I used to, stunned, just stunned. Yeah. I used to read Lord of the Rings every year in the fall. And that year, I'm like, I'm not reading it. Because if I read it too close to the film, I'm going That's to compare good, it. And yeah. I, I really would like to see it. And it looked really good. Um, so that's what I did. Is I, but uh, thanks for all those yeah. cool answers. Yeah, both, seriously. Uh, Max, you reading them and uh, our listeners for writing them. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. And we have a new poll question for uh, next we, week. Do. Yes. Oh. Goody, 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 goody. What's the question? What's the question? Okay, okay. <laughs> Just cool your jets there. Uh, <laughs> we've seen a pant load of animated films remade as live action. Can you think of any live action movie you think would be improved by making it into an animated feature? You stole that! I, I said it last week in oh. the opening. You totally stole it. Oh, okay. I, then I did. I stole it. Great artist steal. <laughs> Yep, well, yeah, but, but it's still mine. Me? I still claim credit. <laughs> mine, mine, mine. I'm trademarking it. I'm bumpy pucking it. I'm whatever. <laughs> it's a good thing you know where I live. Wait, <laughs> wait, huh? <laughs> so, uh, uh, a live action film you'd like to see animated? Yeah. Cool. I'm actually really interested to hear that answer. Me too. Thief. <laughs> Thief baggins, rotten baggins. <laughs> <laughs> we hate it forever. Uh, yeah, so we, we go uh, then. Trivia. The show. Now, the budget for this movie was $9 million. Let me ask you, do you think it made money? Yes, I do. I actually think it probably did really well. You're right. It did pretty well. That's spectacular. It made $20 million. It's not bad. Not bad. No. Uh, This was produced, this kind of floored me, by Ivan friggin' Reitman. You know, Stripes, Ghostbusters, that Ivan Reitman, and the music... Other than, you know, the actual <laughs> songs, were by Oscar winner Elmer Bernstein. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't know how. Oscar winner. He's the guy who did Oscar, all the background. Oscar, Oscar, Oscar. Oscar. <laughs> like I said in the opening, the movie was inspired by the long-running series uh, Heavy Metal, which began in Europe as Metal Hurlant, which literally Are you means, okay? <laughs> I, no, I think I, I think I 
pulled something. Ow, ow. I think I have to hurl on. (laughs) Wayne, I think I'm going to hurl on. Which means wild or screaming. So screaming metal. Most of the story segments in the movie are based on stories or characters featured in the magazine. This was on home video, but it was removed from circulation for years. And I think you can probably guess why. Because of the problems with the music licensing. It's also why it took so long to come out on DVD. So many, why. so I many mean, bands, and so, you know, getting the rights to the music was a nightmare. Yeah. One little thing in the, as in the magazine, the evil thingy that Den battles is called Ulatek. If you see it spelled out, it is in fact Cthulhu spelled backwards. Is it? Yes. Well, they also referred to it as the Lochnar, the green thing. Yeah, well, it, well, the Lochnar was the scepter. Well, that, it's, the, it's the green pulsing it's the green thing pulse. on which the story is threaded somehow. Yes. Well, we'll get to that. Right, we'll get, we'll get there. Uh, we, as in Stripes, we've got four, count them, four cast members from Second City TV in this movie. <laughs> we got John Candy, he's all over the place in this, Joe Flaherty, Eugene Levy, and Harold Ramis. They're all in on this. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the robot that sells Harry Canyon the hot dog is, of course, Robbie the Robot in an uncredited cameo. Yeah, sort of, but yeah. <laughs> uh, according to the creator of the story, Richard, the Den story, Richard Corbin, Den is an acronym. And I always wondered where the hell that name came from because in the movie they don't explain it. He's just, they say, you are Den of Earth. Like, right. Huh? It's an acronym for David Ellis Norman, which is the kid, the, the geeky kid's actual name. Oh. In the original storyline, by the way, the hot woman, Catherine, is an 80-year-old woman on Earth. That's why wow, she, she looks wants great to, for 80. That's why she wants to stay on uh, wherever the hell Planet they are. Planet Q. Planet Q, yeah. Uh, Corbin apparently considered the film adaptation satisfactory. And he was very pleased with John Candy's performance as the main character's voice. <laughs> Not the person I would have picked. Yeah, it's an odd <laughs> choice, but uh, John Candy does a pretty good butch barbarian voice. Uh, the sequence with the mansion exploding at the ending, uh, it was yeah. supposed to be rotoscoped, but the uh, release date had been moved up, and uh, there was no time. So it's the only non-animated sequence in the movie, and it really shows. Yeah, very I noticeable. On that. <laughs> uh, take this for what you will. Elon Musk is apparently a huge, oh, huge God, fan of this right. movie. Because uh, if you remember, he dumped one of his Teslas with Starman at the wheel on top of it, the, the, the Falcon Heavy rocket. It's Basically, it was a tribute to the opening of the movie called Soft Landing. Uh, 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 I'm sorry, one more. Yeah. Uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> the storyline that connected the various tales, the one with the glowing, the Lochnar, was called the Grimaldi segment. Sure. Why? Because uh, two of the guys on the sound crew were Austin and Joe Grimaldi. <laughs> yep, that's it. All you got to be is on the sound crew. Yeah. Uh, the Tarna storyline was illustrated by, you may have heard of this guy, Mobius. Oh, sure. Yeah, he was concerned about the environment, which is why the background has a lot of randomly placed water pipes. Tarna <laughs> is apparently also based on his character, Azrak, or Arzak. Arzak. Arzak, excuse me. Yeah. And for those of us who know Arzak and we're expecting Arzak, we're like, uh, it's a different fat bird, and that's not a guy. <laughs> oh, in the, in the comic, Arzak is a guy? 
Yes, he has a very tall conical hat, and he rides a big, fat, sort of semi-pelican pteranodon thing, like she does. I I thought of it kind of half penguin, half pteranodon, but sure. Sure. Uh, The date on Harry Canyon's copy of the New York Times, so the setting of it, is July 3rd, 2031. Uh Uh-oh, we better hurry. (laughs) Good luck, Leia, we're nine years away from flying cars. And Lochnars. And Lochnars. In the Tarna sequence, the band in the bar that she goes into, the or you know, the tavern, if you will, is playing We're Through Being Cool by Devo. This is not on the soundtrack, which is a damn shame. Oh. There are two never-talked-about versions of this movie. The one oh. that's been THX re- t- remastered today, released in 1996, that everyone knows and loves. But there's another one predating the THX version, and one of the differences in the B-17 segment, when one of the pilots is being attacked in the bubble of the plane, you can hear him screaming in agony. The THX version replaces the screams with music cues. Ah. Yeah. Just changes huh? a few. Yeah, this whole version, the originals only exists on a few late VHS copies of it. Ah. Uh, this was actually aired on TV in the <coughs> mid-90s on TNT. How? They removed all sexual material, Harry and the Woman, Dead's Encounters, most of the language, and the drug references through the Ah, alien abductions. Yeah, in other words, it just didn't make any damn sense. That's why they stopped showing it. (laughs) Why would you bother? Now, there was technically kind of a sequel to this movie. 19 years later, Heavy Metal 2000. With a budget of fifteen million, it was released direct to video. It ah. was also not based on any stories from the magazine, but was based on a graphic novel called *The Melting Pot* by Kevin Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Eastman, ah. and drawn by artist Simon Bisley. Oh, sure. Well, you know, you know Simon Bisley. Sure. Okay. And uh, he based the appearance of the female protagonist after nude model and B movie actress Julie Strain. Who of was course. then the wife of Kevin Eastman? Yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm <laughs> embarrassed to admit I actually know who Julie Strain is. I've seen a couple of B movies with her in it, and uh, she actually lends her voice to the character, uh, the main character. <laughs> hey, hun, want to be in a movie? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I'll pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> you usually do. Been... Well, that's when he had that sweet turtle money, but. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that—that's what I've got. Uh, you—you you got anything to add, Mike? Uh, just mostly stuff that has to do with the magazine and comics and stuff, but we can get into that into the main part of the show. Right now, I am dying (laughs) to hear you uh, summarize this movie's plot. Would you um, string this together like a Lochnar bead for me? Nope. (laughs) Yes. The plot. Uh, yeah, about that. (laughs) Look, there's no nice way to say it. This movie has no plot. Like the movie it's based on, it's a bunch of unconnected science fiction and fantasy vignettes with no overarching theme or message, while the screenwriters tried to bolt it together with a rather ham-handed connecting device. Okay, that's not fair. There is one overarching theme in this movie, and it involves showing as many naked, absurdly proportioned women as possible. (laughs) Succeed in that. Oh, and what is the connecting device? An astronaut brings home a weird, glowing green orb for his young daughter. Because that's what you bring, your ten-year-old daughter. The orb promptly melts him, 
and then spends the next 86 minutes threatening the little girl and explaining how evil it is and how she has no chance of escape. At the end, she escapes because, <laughs> because one of the stories kills the orb. And now the little orphaned girl with no house lives happily ever after and probably once she goes through puberty naked. Breasts. Oh, <laughs> is that the end? Uh, there are, in fact, eight segments that make up this movie. Soft Landing, Grimaldi, which is the connecting thing with the Loch Nahr, Harry Canyon, Den, Captain Stern, B-17, So Beautiful and So Dangerous, and Tarna. That's it. They have nothing to do with each other except occasionally there's a green glowy rock in each of them. And now, the rest of the show. Yep. But... Before we go too much further, I just want to let people know that you should stay tuned to the very end of the show because oh, we yes. have a very special announcement. <laughs> yes, very, very special. Very special announcement. Yeah. Hello, Down. Uh, usual question. Did you see this when it came out? I did. I saw it in the theaters, but I thought we don't talk about that till the end. Oh, we know we throw yeah. that in. All. That's usually what yeah. I start. Well, we often start with. We don't ask you how you liked it. Yeah. We just ask you if you saw it. Uh, another uh, very important uh, related question. Were you high at the time? I was not. I was not high. <laughs> Did I, you wish you were? Yes. I very much <laughs> wish I had been. I would have been a lot more fun. Although probably the last segment would have felt even longer. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you happen did you, to see this at the Harvard Square? Uh, yeah, I think I probably did. I think sure everyone else was was high though. That, yeah, that was... yeah. I may, have, I may have picked up a contact high. I'm not sure. Yeah, I saw it. Th- I don't didn't see it like when it came out. I probably saw it sometime in the early '80s as part of their regular rotation yeah. of films. Um, and I guarantee that that's why they brought it back is because people love to come to watch this movie high. John Candy. Yeah. Four times. <laughs> four times, and he's pretty good. I mean, sure. But he wasn't even John Candy yet. I mean, he was yeah. he was John Candy, but he was not the household name he would become by far. So I don't... Somebody must have had friends in... You said it was Second City, right? Yeah, yeah. Somebody must have... Known. Must, also, well, you have to understand, this movie is was made in Canada. And sure. Second City TV is was... That was a Canadian show. Despite right. the fact, yeah, this movie was made in Canada, there is no Canadian music in it. None of the bands... <laughs> None of the many... Oh. By the way, I made a list. Do you know who is in this thing? Yeah, Sammy Hagar, oh, Devo. Um, man, who else? I did look at oh, the yeah, list Sam- at the end. Cheap Trick, Black Sabbath, yeah. Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, Black uh, Sandwich? Black Sandwich. <laughs> man, I like that. I like that. I, I want to form a heavy metal band called Black Sandwich. I'm sure <laughs> you do. It's on uh, Pumpernickel. Devo. Stevie Nicks does a song in there somewhere. I never sure. really thought of her as particularly metal. No. Yeah, Journey is in there. It, it, the soundtrack is astonishing. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go there. Um, Harold Ramis. <laughs> I, sure. Yeah. He plays one of the stoner aliens. Yeah, Cheech and Chong in space, let's face it. Basically, yeah. yeah. In fact, they actually do snort up a hanger full of coke at one point. <laughs> Excuse me, um, that was Nyborg. <laughs> uh, exactly, yes. <laughs> Which, for all I know, might have been slang for coke somewhere. I don't know. Ask for it by name. Yeah. Um, uh, let's go through a couple of the segments. Well, now, let's start with the Corvette. Yeah. The Corvette in space is more MTV than MTV. Very and in much fact, so. Later that year, we'd get MTV. Yeah. The fact MTV's that it's coming in to the tune of Radar Rider. 
Yep. That's and it's a guy in a space suit. Yep. With the top and down. Of course, for those who don't remember or don't know, the original symbol for MTV was the astronaut on the moon with the flag, except it had MTV on the flag yep. instead of the American flag. None. But like, none, 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 the timing none, was none, kind of... <laughs> No, 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 no. Thank you for that uh, <laughs> stunning recreation. <laughs> it's like you were there, wasn't it? <sighs> um, yeah, so it's literally just, hey, we're going to launch a Corvette out of a spaceship and it's going to land somehow on Earth. Yeah, why not? That's it. That's the story. <laughs> That's the entire... Um, yeah, th I don't know why they call that a story. It's an opening segment. That's about it. It is meant to look cool. And I'll, I'll throw this out there. We will go through the other segments, but I'll throw this out there. That's kind of mostly the point of yeah. heavy metal. Yeah. Either the magazine or the movie. Yeah. Let's make about, something that looks cool. Let's make, yeah. We, we're interested in the visuals, plot, story. Yeah, okay, whatever. And then the next one, I guess, would technically be the Grimaldi section. I'm a Grimaldi warrior. <laughs> <laughs> which is sure. literally the guy in the spacesuit taking his helmet off and giving his daughter the big green thing, which connects the rest of the and then movie. Which then kills him. And then the green thing thereby threatens the little girl... To show her the rest of the movie. I mean, yeah. threatens her by showing yeah. her the rest of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that again, the the connecting element, the um, the Lochnar. force, the force connection with the Lochnar is really shoehorned in. I mean, it makes it doesn't it makes no sense. It doesn't do anything. It's just here. I'm going to sit here and tell you story after story that is supposed to show you how evil I am. Including the ones where I don't actually do anything. Well, I haven't seen a connection this week since, what was that Stephen King anthology? Was it Cat's Eye, which was literally yes. four stories connected together that Had a cat would a walk cat through? A cat wandered and it's like... through, yes. <laughs> that, is, that is, yeah, that was about, that was right up there, yeah. Yeah. Um, after that, I don't remember. You have them in order? I yeah, I do. But also I want to point out, the Lochnar, we don't see in the credits who voiced the, the super evil Lochnar. Who this, did voice it? Uh, it's a guy named Percy Rodriguez, who you see. Yeah, yeah, believe it or not, this guy has been in everything: Mission Impossible, Star Trek, the original series, all sorts as bit parts. If you see, if you look him up, you'll look at him and you'll go, "Oh, that guy from that thing." <laughs> Percy Rodriguez. Percy Rodriguez. <laughs> I'm sure it was like Percival. Percy Rodriguez. I'm now looking him up because, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, see? That guy from that thing. Yep. Okay, I got to say, look up Percy Rodriguez because whatever you're visualizing <laughs> as somebody named Percy Rodriguez, that's not what you're going to nope, get. it does not look anything <laughs> like him. Wow, it was like, okay. Uh, it, in the first, like, real segment, the Har Harry Canyon, which actually starts with my favorite song in this movie. I say I don't know a lot of metal, and I don't, but I know some. And this was this movie, I really like Veteran of the Psychic Wars, Blue Oyster okay. Cult. And that song just really brought me in. It was like, wow, this is so cool. It has nothing to do with this at all, but it's a really <laughs> cool song. Yeah. And the guy, Dan, a uh, guy's named Don Franks, who does Harry Canyon, he, if you look him up, you won't, you won't recognize him because mostly what he does is voice work, but he's done a ton of it. And I, I have wish to he'd say, done it better. Yeah, I got to say, <laughs> for a, trying to do a New York accent, you really can tell he's from Vancouver. So this segment in particular is one I did want to bring up because oh, yeah. in the in in the metal Oulon or heavy yeah. metal whichever the original segment was just called the taxi driver. Um, here it's called Harry Canyon, and if it feels at all familiar, it should. It's because a certain <laughs> film would come along later, going, "Hey, that's cool. I bet we could do it better." And it was called The Fifth Element. Yeah, and 
Bruce Willis's character is meant to be in Cor Corbin. Richard Corbin, I know he didn't do this section, but Richard Corbin was one of the major artists of heavy metal, and I'm uh, pretty sure that's why they call Corbin. him Corbin. I don't know what the Dallas is from. Yeah, yeah, and even both of the main women in the two are redheads. Yeah, so... Yeah, do you, you notice the girl in the, in the Harry Canyon story has no name? She's just the well, girl. I notice that tends to be a theme in this film because yeah. the way it portrays women is so nice and oh, well thought out. It's very respectful. And... Yes. Yeah. Now, the, well, let's face it, the, the men are often treated this way too. But yes, the women are very much objectified. Although in Den, you can't tell me he's not a little, a little beefcake there. Yeah, but of course, what's the first thing he does, which is not true in the comic, is he's like, oh, I don't want my dork hanging out, which is the only line I remembered from this <laughs> film. Yeah, apparently and, a, that was like a little sort of shot at the, uh, the the producers of the movie, because in the original comic, and I only know this because I read about it, uh, they're all naked, and there yeah. aren't, there's no nudity taboo on this world. No. And the whole thing with the loincloths was kind of a joke, because every t if you see people in long shots, they are naked. And then suddenly oh. the loincloth is back. Ooh, animated penis. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, the dense the the den stories are very very simple. It's a bit. It is a kid who shows up. He gets transformed into this big muscled. It's a it's a male power fantasy. That's all. Yeah, it is. yeah. And he goes and around beating up bad guys and getting women. And yeah, it's know. a it's very much a male nerd fantasy too. Because this kid is a he's a nerd. He's nerdlinger and he becomes Conan. Yeah. I was um, curious, there, why does Ard, one of the bad guys, sound like Jeff Goldblum? It isn't, he, he kind of... I think, I think he was supposed to be gay. I think it was supposed uh, to be a fey emperor. Yeah, yeah. Have him stripped and sent to my tent, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, stripped. <laughs> um, I have the power, not you. I. So, yeah, whatever. Even the bit at the end of that segment when Ard and the Queen are fighting over... The Queen doesn't get a name either, by the way. They're fighting over the Lochner. It sounds like two teenagers fighting over the remote. No, no, it's my Lochner. Give me, give me the Lochner. <laughs> I mean, it's so out of place. It's so odd. As they don't sound invested at all. It's no. I also, this is one of those types of fantasy. There's levels of fantasy stories. Yeah. This is the level of fantasy story where all the characters have monosyllabic names because that's <laughs> all they can remember. Like Den or Ard or Dar or yeah. Take Your Pick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was a Beastmaster reference. <laughs> yeah. What's it, what, which one comes after uh, uh, Then there's Captain Stern. That, oh, one's yeah, just sort of that one's just sort of straight comedy. It's very cartoonish. Yeah. It's a very different animated... There's some different animated styles in this. There's a lot of rotoscoping in this. Not enough. Um, yeah, well. Bernie Wrightson. This is a really a weird departure for him because Bernie Wrightson was not known for comedy comics. He actually was much more known for horror comics. Um, adaptation. He did a great illustrated adaptation of Frankenstein. He did... I want to say that he did some stuff for Swamp Thing. Oh. Um, very detailed... Uh, heavy line work stuff. He, he's a, a great draftsman. Um, but this was a comic he did for Heavy Metal for the fun of it, I guess. And I, I do remember it showing up in the magazine. I, I remember seeing one story, a Captain Stern story, that got reprinted somewhere else where they mention it. it apparently, Hanover is not supposed to die. The character Hanover Fist, first off, I love the name. Yeah. He's not supposed to die because he ends up sort of, he helps him out other times. Oh. But they don't say, I think one of the characters says, well, why don't you call your friend with a glandular condition? Oh, good Lord, not Hanover. Yeah, and so I guess... there's a reference in Dread, the comic book Dreadstar to him. Oh, is there? Yeah, there's a character in Dreadstar called Teuton, 
who's basically their version of the Hulk. Uh-huh. And at one point, he mumbles something about, I should have gone into the other business with my cousin Hanover. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I like Dread Star. Uh, next segment. Well, hang on. What do you think of the oh. visuals in Captain Stern? The backgrounds and such. Uh, in general, and this is going to go for because the segments are do have different styles. Yeah, some. Some of the background art is very cool and is obviously based on the comics from which they came. The animation, I think it was very kind that they gave some newbies, some first-time <laughs> animators, some work. <laughs> Unfortunately, they gave them all the major things to do. The animation's honestly pretty terrible. Yeah. Um, the rotoscoping, that's, some of it's not even technically rotoscoping, and Disney did this. So in, I think it was the first time that it was 101 Dalmatians. If you ever watch that and you're like, wow, Cruella DeVille's car looks really cool. Like, how the hell did they do something that 3D that effectively back then? Or the motorcycle and the Aristocats. It's like, what did they do? It was actually really smart. They made a cardboard model of the car. They made a, a little um, set for the car of the roads that it would travel on. Yeah. The car was painted white, but the literal edges of the car they did in black so they could film it in black and white. And what they'd end up with was just a print that looked like black and white outlines of a 3D object. And then they would literally take that they oh, and they would Xerox paint it? each frame and then paint it. Oh, wow. And it looks hand-drawn, but it also looks very solid in 3D. And I was like, that's pretty cool. God, they must have taken forever. Um, it was a lot better than trying to draw it by hand. Yes, but wow, I didn't know that. Um, and do you think yeah. that's what they're doing in this? Well, I think while they really did, like with the Corvette, all they really uh, did was just take photographs and Xerox them. I okay. don't think they even like did you know anything much more than that. And later in the end of the film, I did have a note which said, "Oh, they blew up a dollhouse." Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. Um, uh, the art again, it's very evocative of the the uh, the magazine. Um, I will say, too, in general, this feels a lot more 70s than 80s. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, why did you bring yeah. it up? I assume you have a... No, I was just curious. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. uh, I think one of the things that I noticed uh, in this movie are not, are not so much the characters, but the backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, in uh, going back a bit to Harry Canyon, the characters visually aren't that interesting. No. But New the vision of New York City... I think it's it's really interesting. It's very crowded. I, I mean, visually crowded. A lot going on. I thought it's kind of interesting. A lot of throwaway stuff. Okay. The well, uh, well real quick while we're yeah. there. So there was a, a credit in the film. I don't know if you not noticed it or not. And it wasn't for the Harry Canyon section. It was actually for the Tarna section. To Arna. At least there was no apostrophe yeah. in there. Uh, it was a uh, artist by the name of Howard Chaikin. Oh, actually did work on this. Now Howard Good Chaikin. Lord, the greatest thing to co happen to comics since the pencil. Uh, that's what I heard. Some <laughs> convention, so weird. Um, there was a comic he would do that would come out a couple years later called American Flag. And some of the feeling that they have in this ends up American Flag. Yeah, so like when he goes to that. the cops, the cops are all like, okay, if you want us to investigate, it'll cost so much money. So everything is monetized. Everything is privatized. And there was a lot of that in American Flag. And of course, the 80s, Comics in particular, and we'll get we'll talk more about comics, but in particular, had we uh, we even mentioned earlier in one of the other shows of the eighty one series, would have corporations as the big bad guys. Well, you'd also see a lot of corporations taking over government yeah. sort of things, yeah. which of course would never, <laughs> never <laughs> certainly <laughs> couldn't happen. Anyway, next well, section. Next section, segment yeah. was B seventeen. Oh, please. 
please don't play P17. <laughs> it was our song. It was his song, but but it's over. Oh, God. <laughs> please, Mr. Please. That's right. I, you know, yeah. I didn't even put that together. But that's right. Really? That That is the title of that stupid song, isn't it? <laughs> oh, <Yes>. Lord. <laughs> Great. Now I'm never going to be able to forget that. Thank you. Um, yeah, this is a very, first of all, it's a very weird transition because we go from Captain Stern, which is pretty much pure comedy, yeah. to this very dark, gritty, realistic, trying to be, World yeah. War II movie. Yep. Which is, that's what it is. It's basically a segment in a B-17 uh, bomber that suddenly turns into a zombie story. Yeah, a brief zombie story. Very brief zombie story. Which is fine, because we yeah. have to save time. Yes. Because <sighs> Tarn We're, is coming. Well, we all, then we have So Beautiful and So Dangerous. First of all, this is the only segment where I look at it and go, what the hell does the title have to do with the segment? Is this the aliens, the space aliens with the drugs? Yeah. Yeah. There's no nothing, that. I mean, the secretary's cute, but there's nothing particularly beautiful or dangerous in this movie. Also, the Lochnar doesn't show up. Uh, it kind of does. She's where the the secretary <laughs> is the wearing. Fire a, she's wearing what? It was, it was in the, in fire, the fire. In the fireplace. <laughs> the ashtray. No, she's wearing a brooch in her cleavage, oh, and the, that's it's it. On, that's it. It it doesn't do anything. I see. That's it. Yeah, but there is lots of drug reference. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's I can't even to drug do reference, and there's very. Hey, there, there's some. There's a very strange sex sequence of a small robot having sex with this uh, bizarrely built human woman. I have to admit, this is the one. That's the one part of the movie that I thought was kind of funny. Is yeah. the incredible speed of the courtship. You know, they yeah. have sex, and immediately he says, "Do you want to go steady?" And then in the next scene, I don't understand. We laugh together. We we talk to each other. We have highly proficient sex. Why can't we get married? <laughs> <laughs> the courtship of Ed Two Hundred Nine. Yeah. <laughs> yep, that's a deeper. Yep, uh, yep. And she, all right, I'll marry you, but I want a Jewish wedding. I'm like, all right, how are you going to handle that in space? I'm like, yeah. keep thinking Jews in space. <laughs> that's an unfortunate connotation. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's also not kosher. Um, that's and then do we finally the get to ta- uh, uh, Arna? Yeah, well, hang on, you don't want to talk about the, the so beautiful and so dangerous at all? No. Okay, <laughs> again, another one where there's, I swear to God, the visual of the spaceship hovering yeah. over the Pentagon, where have I seen that? I swear. I think it, I think it actually is a Mobius drawing. I okay. Think it was used, I think it's been used in other things. And it doesn't actually animate so much as it moves up and down. Yeah, uh, it's literally, <laughs> it, all, it really does look they're sort of sliding a picture down another picture. Yeah, yeah, this one there's not again. The background visuals are interesting, but there's nothing here. The plots don't go any plots. They don't. Nothing <laughs> goes anywhere. It really it feels like visual filler. And then yes, we get to Tarna. Tarnex. Yes. <laughs> they get to Tarnarara Boomdia. Yes. All I can say is thank the gods that a naked woman could come and save us from the evil Lochner. Yes. Yes. Tarana was a gift from France and has been a symbol of freedom to naked women everywhere. Bunchy <laughs> balls! <laughs> Sorry, splash reference. <laughs> uh, don't tell them, let them look at it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and this is the longest segment. And I and, say longest segment, oh, I mean the, feels longest the longest sex section in the movie. Um, 
and the naked woman is eventually um they have to of course tie her up because whatever and then luckily yeah. she's eventually she and her fat flying bird are <laughs> she <laughs> she is called. by the way literally scrubbed and sent to someone's tent <laughs> and he does say and she doesn't have any lines no, at all the idea is she's supposed to be you know what you know silent and menacing but all i figure is they didn't want to pay another voice actor yeah well whatever um and that that does uh, the big action sequence and uh this is how they tie things together. Spoiler yeah. is Tarna by destroying the Lochnar in the past, which the Lochnar of the future is telling you, uh, release its its evilness such that the young girl can grow up to become Tarna, or the, or the next Tarakian, or Tarnese. Uh, yeah, because no, she got a her bird was purple, so yeah, she, obviously sure, she's different. Yeah, it yeah um, I, it doesn't fit together at all. So the um. The the main man behind this film is a guy named Dan O'Bannon. I want to bring him up real quick. Sure. Um, people might know some of his work. Um, his first work was actually done with a guy in school named John Carpenter. Oh. They got ponied up some cash, and they made a movie called Dark Star, which oh, actually did really well. Yeah. yeah. It opened a lot of doors for both of them, especially John Carpenter. But uh, Dan O'Bannon would go back and forth doing things like special effects and directing and writing. He was one of the screenwriters for a little film you may have heard of called Alien. Yeah, because again, uh, Ridley Scott, that wasn't his idea. Um, he was signed to do the special effects for the ill-fated Jodorowsky's version of Dune. Here. Which, if you haven't seen that uh, documentary called Jodorowsky's Dune, highly recommend it. It's really interesting. Um, the Dune we didn't get. You think there was a lot of drugs made with uh, heavy metal. Whew. <laughs> You, okay. you ain't seen nothing. He did minor special effects work in Star Wars, the original Star Wars. He wrote uh, Blue Thunder. He co-wrote a movie called Life Force. Oh, he was God. I saw that. was Patrick Sturtz in that. Briefly. Yeah, unfortunately, he was also partially behind the remake of Invaders from Mars. Oh. You missed the field trip, David Gardner. Hey, that was a great scene. <laughs> Louise Fletcher was awesome in that. He consulted... Um, he consulted on... Chud. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this guy's yeah. had quite a storied career. He also directed one of my favorite comedy horror films, uh, Return of the Living Dead. Oh, wow. And he co-wrote Alien vs. Predator. Um, so he had his hand in a lot of science fiction and a lot of uh, speculative fiction sort of stuff. Um, he's a well-known name. And again, he and John Carpenter started out as schoolmates and, you know, that obviously paid off in the end, but I just wanted to bring him up because he's not a name that gets mentioned a lot these days. Yeah. So, um, well, we have, uh, besides all of this stuff about the film, we have our talking points. Should we get to yeah, those? Yeah, let's do those. Was this film a standout for the year 1981? Uh, yeah, I think it kind of was. It was It was an attempt to, well, it was one of the attempts to bring animation into to an adult audience. And uh, yeah. they, yeah, because that hadn't happened very much by 1981, apart from you know Fritz the Cat and Wizards. Yeah, not in this country. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, th I think it kind of was. It uh, it made an impact. It it made more than its double its its budget. Yeah. I don't know that it was a cultural zeitgeist. Not really, whatever. no. But did this film significantly affect films that came after it? Uh, I think they may have used it as a blueprint for what not to do. Well, here's the thing, and there, there's been a lot of talk. There's actually tons of comic book stuff we could have talked about, and we probably oh, yeah. wouldn't have time. But there's a long time, 
push by fans for animation to be used for things other than kids' fair. Yeah. Because um, heck knows, pretty much everywhere else in the world does. <laughs> Just not us. We yeah. are. It's like no, no. That's just like little. That's Mickey Mouse and stuff. We don't right. do that. You know, adult uh, animation. It gets maybe tossed into a couple of indie theaters, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, and most anime, arguably, is not for kids. There's, yeah, it's it has you know quote unquote adult themes, or basically, it's just not made specifically for tweeners or whatever. It's made for anybody, or you know, though there's anime about lawyers. Why not? Um, the problem is, is in this country, whenever you use the word adult, somebody assumes it means porn, which is just short of what this film is. Yeah. Uh, did, do you have to find out in your research, do you know what it was rated when it came out? It was rated R. I was wondering if it actually made it to X. No, it did, but, I did not. Okay. okay. You know, people want to avoid an X rating like the plague because it really oh. restricts where a movie will be shown. They'll do almost anything to avoid that. Oh, oh, I know they don't want it. That yeah. doesn't mean they don't get it. Nah. <laughs> and I was honestly watching this as like, I'm not sure. This I could easily see this going one way or the other. I mean, you know, there's no uh, head exploding without fire behind it. <laughs> That's going back to the first episode in this series. Yeah. It's your episode on Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> Does this movie reflect 1981? Musically, boy, howdy. <laughs> This is so early 80s metal. Oh, yeah, and late 70s. Oh, yeah. That's about it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not like it reflected any particular trend in animation or storytelling, but the music, yes. I, I would say visually it still really felt yeah, 70s. Yeah, very 70s. You know, I mean, the, the magazine started in 76 in France. I don't know, I don't know it when it came over here, maybe 78, something like that. Um, and there's the whole, even with the music that's in there, it still feels very 70s to me. None of the stories takes place in current day at all. Some of them take place in, you know, or like World War II. Um, and they don't seem to be in any way reflecting politics or, or culture. cultural trends. Well, not really. Yeah. So I would say no. Um, except for the soundtrack. Except for the soundtrack. And even then it goes back and forth. Mm. Um Real quick, I know we mentioned this. The treatment of women in this film is absolutely horrible, mm. abhorrent. Um, the few that have lines, <laughs> which are are anybody any woman in this film is nude at some point um, and is ridiculously proportioned, um, and of course is constantly touching themselves. Uh, so you see, um, I wish it didn't have to be porn. There's generally, let me think, no, not a single reason for it in the film, but there it is, because this is that high school boy's secret naughty movie. <laughs> um, doesn't it feel like that? Doesn't it feel oh. like this is a 16-year-old going, oh, yeah. I got a copy of Heavy Metal on VHS. Oh, yeah, this is the first time I'd ever seen breasts in animation. You know, it's yeah. like, not wow. Well drawn. Uh, there is a cameo by the USS Enterprise. <laughs> yes, there is. It's Part so it beautiful and by. so deadly. Yeah, yep. um, and it does represent heavy metal. The magazine, heavy metal. That's also heavy metal with sort of softcore porn. I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't know how soft it was. Yeah. They could get away with a lot because it was drawn. Yeah. Um, and I will say this: some of it was translated from mostly from French. Um, some of the stories were from Spain or other parts of Europe. The stuff that I read, at least translated tend to have a very common thread, which was there were some amazing visuals, especially by people like Mobius or Philippe Drier, um, Richard Corbin even, who was American. Um, but you'd get these stories that were um, 
shall we say, thin <laughs> and almost more like, well, just, you know, I wanted to draw boobs, you know, or <laughs> I want to draw a spaceship. And they, it, maybe it's, it's an effect of the translation, but in general, I found the stories in Heavy Metal, the magazine, to be not as well thought out as the artwork. Mm -hmm. The artwork tended to be fantastic and was unlike anything we were getting in comics in the in America in the 80s at all. And I would say that Heavy Metal, the, the magazine, not the film, really did ex start to help expand horizons and expand what could be and would be done in comics. And the early 80s was actually a really exciting time in comics. You'd get things like independent publishers. You'd get things like stuff brought over from England. Uh, Tanker would be brought over. Uh, you'd get American Flag. You all got sorts Teenage of cool Mutant stuff. Ninja Turtles. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, Forgot that, didn't that, you? <laughs> yeah. And they actually apparently came to the store with their box of comics, and we said no, but whatever. <laughs> I say we. I haven't worked there in over 20 years. But uh, it's an interesting reminder. Yeah. Um, and Heavy Metal apparently is still coming out. Yeah, it's still now, out there. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it did have an impact more so in the comics world, I think, than the animation world. Because right after this, of course, you would see, let me think, absolutely no attempts to make <laughs> animated films that weren't by Ralph Bakshi. So, but uh, that's all my notes. Yep. Did you uh, yeah, have no, more? I think I got, all, got through all of mine. The Roundup. So, Max. Yeah. You said you saw it when it came out. I did. And you weren't high. I was not. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember what you thought of it? Uh, I remember really liking the music. I remember being kind of floored by all the nudity because I'd never seen any of that in animation before. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember thinking this was something very different and being kind of struck by that. I do remember thinking, wow, this last segment is incredibly slow. Yeah. I, I, I remember kind of liking it when I was young. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, I thought, it was, uh, I thought it was new and different, and there were naked women in it. So, you know, <laughs> when you're a teenager, that... Uh, yeah. That's important. So, had you seen it since then, yeah, before I watching did. it for this show? I have. And? It doesn't hold up so well. <laughs> really, it no. doesn't. I mean, you start to get all the naked women, it starts to get kind of uncomfortable now. And yeah. you realize, and then you realize, wow, none of these segments have any kind of real plot or character. I yeah. mean, and the one that tries to is so slow and so superficial that it doesn't... It really doesn't, and in fact, even the, the Tarnas segment, seeing it now, I'm going, wow, a lot of this doesn't make any sense. It's like, yeah. So she's supposed to be this awesome, badass warrior, and, uh, well, she can beat up three drunks in a bar, and that's about it. Otherwise, she gets caught every time and has a lot of trouble, and if it weren't for her, you know, flying penguin chicken pteranodon, <laughs> she would have been dead. Yeah. But, uh, and, and the... The connecting device is so, it just seems more and more ham-handed every time I see it. So, I, what about you? Did You did you said you saw it around when it came out. Well, that sounds like you're not going to recommend it. <laughs> so I'll take that as a no. Oh, I, well, from a historical point of view, if you want to see, and also for the sound, honestly, I'd say by the soundtrack. If you're into, yeah. if you're into that old, older 70s and 80s metal, because that was, that is something remarkable about it. That That had a couple, I mean... I'd never heard Black Sabbath. I'd never heard Sandwich. Black Sandwich. I never heard the, you know the Mob Rules. I was like, wow. I'd never even heard Crazy Train. 
Mm. That introduced me to that. I knew Blue Oyster Cult only from Don't Fear the Reaper. Yeah. Blue Oyster Cult. Oyster it's, Cult. It's, it's, it's umlauted. And I, I do have to say, it, this movie really could have used more cowbell. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did see it sometime in the 80s at the Harvard Square Theater, which was a golden era of every day there was two new movies to watch, and this one came by around quite a bit. I think at the time, like you, I was kind of interested because there was no animation like this. Um, we All we'd had was Disney. Disney was not its best point. I think you pointed out the Disney film for this yeah. year was Fox and the Hound, which, to be fair, a lot of people do like, but let's face it, it's, it's not one of not their one of the big great films. Ones. And it's right before um, The Black Cauldron. Um, yeah. See our episode so, on The Black Cauldron. Yeah. Um, but it was like, you know, it was it was taking the idea of adult entertainment as seriously as the magazine was. Yeah. Um, and heavy metal is synonymous with painted vans, drugs, and loud music. <laughs> There's also this kind of sleazy aspect to heavy metal, both yeah. the magazine and the music and the, t uh, the movie, and it's it's on display here. There's definitely like I probably did feel a little dirty then. I feel very dirty now. Yeah. Um, and it's just because women are treated so badly in this. Tarna feels very much like a white male written woman power fantasy. Yeah. Like, well, I'm gonna make her a powerful character by making her nude, and then we watch her get dressed slowly, and then she goes to fight the bad guy who takes her armor off, and she's nude, and then she's tied up, and then we whip her, and, uh, and then but she, she gets out and wins! Yes, okay. I, I have two I had two other notes in there. One was, you know, if Tarna had taken a little less time getting dressed, she might have been able to get to the city and actually do some good when the barbarians are attacking. And also, that is, again, it, and this plays into a trope that has been around forever and is still around, and that is the absurdity of fantasy female armor. You know, never yeah. mind, this is, this is below the chainmail bikini. Yeah. She's wearing an actual cloth bikini. All, the only thing that's armored is her right arm and her shins. Yeah. So, you know, her <laughs> shins are safe in battle, thank <laughs> God. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, they will do this quite often with the guys. Beastmaster. Yeah. Stalker, oh, yeah. Barbarian twins, uh, Conan. Um, and, <laughs> you know, Conan they can block sometimes him. wears actual armor that covers him. Not for long, <laughs> which is fine. Yeah. I have no problem with that. <laughs> um, it's just, I, I, I would rather see a woman write or create a powerful woman character than I would some white guy who probably has never kissed a woman. I'm, I don't know that, but that's what it feels like. That is, yeah, this, um, this movie does feel a lot like it was done by a whole lot of men who'd never been within six feet of a woman. And it is very representative of at least the 80s issues of heavy metal. So in that way, I would say it's successful. It, it's just the animation's not very good. It's adult with a capital A and almost an X. Um, it's not very interesting. I could say... Listen to us, and don't listen to that. Um, just, just maybe the soundtrack. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Max, would you do us a favor and would yeah. you read back our uh, poll question for this week? Uh, I will this do this stolen. Poll question I will do this week. completely original idea I had. <laughs> that was totally my idea. Eh? <laughs> uh, We've seen a pantload of animated films remade as live action. Can you think of any live action movie that would be improved by making it into an animated feature? And Mike had nothing to do with this question. <laughs> 
Just listen to last week's episode. <laughs> oh, look at that. It's down off the website. How did that happen? <laughs> and how can people tell us their answers, Max? They can answer this totally original question of mine by... <laughs> you can email us at us at maxmikemovie.com for extra bumpy bucks. You can go to our website, maxmikemovies.com, and leave a comment. You can find us on the Facing Books and the Twitterings under Max Mike Movies. And you can, of course, listen to us on the podcast app of your choice, or of our choice, if you wish to be swayed by our Lochnar-like power. <laughs> Ooh, I think my Lochnar's swelling. <laughs> they make a cream for that. I about that. <laughs> but, uh, so that, will, uh, this that brings br- us to a close. Yes. Like, real quick, if, uh, if you would, uh, what did you think of 1981? It certainly came before 1982. It- <laughs> It was a surprisingly diverse and rich year for movies. I was surprised when we looked through and at every entry was like, oh, that came out in 1980. Oh, that was it. We also, there were a bunch we never got to. I was kind of sorry we never got to Arthur. We didn't get to yeah. Excalibur. There's a whole yeah. bunch of movies from 1981. It was a surprisingly uh, rich, rich uh, year. And uh, thank you to our listeners for suggesting that one. Yeah. It was all due to you. Yeah. He gave us two suggestions. One, yes, we should use dice. And two, here's four years we should choose. And yep. we rolled live-ish. Yep. Lo- it live on tape. Uh, and Max sorry, totally tape. didn't drop the D4. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, told, I, meant, I meant to do that. But So that brings uh, us to the close of this series. Tell us about our next series, Mike. Well, next series, we're going to be doing something a little bit more uh, contemporary. Uh, these days, going to the movies is not as, shall we say, easy or, shall we say, safe as it once was. We are hoping that maybe this year that will change. But for oh, now, please. big big studios are uh, making big decisions as to where their films show up. And quite often, they're not actually going to the theater or they're not just going to the theater. So next week, we're going to be starting a new series called Now Streaming in a Room Near You. Room near me? So is everyone yes. going to have to come to my house to watch these? Okay. I did tell you. Yep, that's fine. That's fine. I've got the sleeping bags, the cots, and lots and lots of extra carpet tax. Yeah, carpet tax? <laughs> you got to have carpet tax for your guests. Uh, sure. Not everyone brings anyway. their own. Yeah. Um, yes, we will be watching yes, streaming movies. Movies that are either exclusively released streaming or were released simultaneously in theaters and streaming. Yes. And uh, what are we going to start off with? Well, we're going to start off with a movie that is on a service that, uh, admittedly, not as many people have. Uh, it's a streaming service by a little tiny startup company uh, <laughs> <Rodent-like> <laughs> called Apple. <even. laughs> yes. This is on Apple TV Plus. It's a film. I, uh, to be fair, I've just seen the the um, preview. I have not seen this film, and I'm actually really interested to see it. It's about a man who uh, gets clones of himself or a clone of himself, and uh, may or may not uh, wish he hadn't. Oh boy, is this is Michael called- Michael Keaton's duplicity. Double Mr. Mom, I, yes. No, it is not. It is actually a film called Swan Song. My favorite and... frozen TV dinner. <laughs> That's Swan Sun. Oh, 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 sorry. <laughs> oh. But before we get to our end theme, here's that special announcement. So stay tuned, won't you? And join us next week for Swan Song. Start your day the bumpy pucks way. Made with alfalfa, oats, and hay. Have a bowl, you'll never frown. Keep an extra box around. Sugar-frosted bumpy pucks. Our ponies work twice as hard, so you only have to chew half as long. Or something. Oh, and vitamins. 
This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench. Thank you.